What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with our producer and co host, Nick Janusa. Nick, happy 100th episode of the planet today. It is unbelievable that we are at the 100th episode of the planet today. I can't even believe it. I'm sitting here in awe. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. Yeah, it's been incredible. Like I, I can't thank everyone enough for everything that they've done, liking the show, commenting on TikTok, liking the TikToks, liking our Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. It's just been great. We love you guys. We appreciate it so much. The support has been unbelievable. Yeah, seriously. Thank you to all the listeners. Um, you know, we, we really can't do this show without you because without an audience, we're kind of just talking into the void, <laughs> which sometimes this feels like we're doing anyway. <laughs> but no, like knowing people that are, there are out there listening to us, vibing with us, probably disagreeing with us at times, probably agreeing with us at times. That's all healthy. We appreciate you. We love you. And thank you for being here along along for the ride, really. Agreed. Yeah, it's been a great ride so far. Let's let's get to 300. Let's get to 200. I'm ready to roll. Yeah, I remember we made a joke at TPT 10 <laughs> and we were like, wow, double digits. It's going to take forever to get to triple. It has flown <laughs> by, man. So it has. Yeah. Nick, thank you for everything you do on this show. Giselle, if you're listening right now, thank you for being an unbelievable co-host and, and uh, with all of the help writing the show. Dan, CJ stepping in whenever we need you guys and yep. Kaylee for the graphic design. The, the whole TPT team has been tremendous and we love you. We appreciate you. This one is for the TPT team. Hell yeah. All right, let's do it. And I'm wearing my Bears 100 right now too. I don't know if you can see that, but I'm wearing my Bears 100. Oh yeah, if you're if you're watching this on TikTok later, uh, Nick's wearing a Bears jersey. I'm wearing a Packers jersey. We have a fantasy draft in approximately, what, hour and a half? Two and a half hours. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. Got two rival teams with two best friends making a hell of a show together. <laughs> Let's make another one. Let's do it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits. And the first one was published in The Guardian from Agency France Press, and it's titled South African Court Bans Offshore Oil and Gas Exploration by Shell. This is a big win for marine conservationists who worry about the impact that seismic waves caused by drilling has on marine life. South African court upheld a ban on Shell's exploration for oil and gas off the Indian Ocean coast late last week, which basically set aside a 2014 decision that granted the right for exploration in two marine areas. This was celebrated outside of the courthouse by both civil rights organizations and civilians, and a Shell spokesperson said they, quote, respect the court's decision and need to determine their next steps. Shell says that they're committed to South Africa and the company's role in the just energy transition. 
Green Connection, one of the environmental and human rights organizations that filed the case against Shell, said that civil society, traditional communities, and small-scale fishermen have once again been vindicated by the courts. Yeah, I don't know how just the energy transition can be if Shell's involved, unless they're dumping some of that revenue into yeah. not oil and gas and starting to plug some more, uh, some more methane wells in favor of solar and wind energy, but we'll see. Yeah, and like, it, it just... This is just a good overall decision because it's like you can't just go into a country straight up for profit and then just leave it a disaster and walk out with your hands like behind your head like, oh, yeah, we're good. We're chilling. You, you say that you can't do that, but that's kind of been the, <laughs> the status quo for a while with a lot of no, these I know. companies. No, it, so it's just insane that they've gotten away with it for this long. Yeah. Like, that's what's just so mind boggling to me. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. You know, it's been kind of that's been the MO for a lot of these countries, sorry, uh, companies for a while. And to see a, con- a country stepping up and being like, no more, that's great news. Yeah. Awesome. So Shell had planned to collect seismic data from more than 6,000 square kilometers or 2,300 square miles of ocean in natural reserves and waters that marine life calls home. This research would have created loud shockwaves every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day for five months. And that can be potentially harmful for marine species, especially those that rely on echolocation. So, you know, we're talking about whales. We're talking about animals that are really, really impacted by loud noises, migratory animals that are going to avoid these areas. So, you know, to to say that they'll be fine with loud shockwaves every 10 seconds for five months is kind of disingenuous. So I'm glad that the court stepped in and said, no shot. Yeah. South Africa's energy ministry had supported Shell and criticized opposition by claiming Shell was investing in the country's development. The courts ultimately ruled with the people and the environment of South Africa on this one. And thank goodness they did. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, let's let's call it like it is. Right. So the South African energy ministry has a point that Shell was helping the country develop. But at what cost? Like, why are we going to develop in a way that's going to basically really harm not only the country, but the planet? when we can maybe prolong development a little bit by implementing more renewables and and going carbon free, but that's going to be more sustained success. So I think that the energy ministry does have a point and it is that branch of government's job to say, we are focused on energy for the country. So this offshore exploration was a good thing from an energy standpoint, but that's fine in a vacuum. When you look at the big picture, it's really hard to feel anything other than this was the right decision by the courts to say, this is going to do a lot more harm than good, even if it would do some short-term good. Right. It's it's like you're building up your country, but at what cost? Like there's so many other issues that come from, from mining for oil and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, this was this was definitely the right decision. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our next one. And it is titled, Report Says Rich Must Pay the Bill to Avert Social Collapse by Frank Jordans for the Associated Press. All right, if you're a billionaire bootlicker, skip ahead five minutes, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a story about... Jürgen Randers of Norway, who co-wrote the book Limits to Growth in 1972. And Randers said last week that rising inequality and climate change could lead to social collapse in some countries unless the world's richest nations step up and foot the bill for fixing the issue. 
Randers said that some governments are struggling to get the necessary support for certain climate measures because the policies place more of a burden on lower income groups. This article states, with studies showing that the wealthiest 10% of humanity are responsible for about half the world's emissions, the new report argues that it is the rich who need to step up to fix the problem. Randers is quoted in the article as saying, unless the rich pay the bill, we will not get the broad voter support for the strong collective action that is needed to increase the well-being of the global majority. The head of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, John Rockstrom, says that wealthier countries that have a high degree of economic inequality should be leaders in showing we can transition to a low carbon economy without hurting vulnerable populations. One of the suggestions listed in the report is to raise taxes on the wealthiest 10% of individuals and companies for a fund that eases poverty, empowers women, improves the global food system, and phases out fossil fuels. So let's go ahead and look at any of those issues, right? Who is in favor of easing poverty? Hopefully everyone. Who is in favor of empowering women? Hopefully everyone. There's probably some people that are like, what? No, yeah. If, yeah. You're, if that's you, like, stop listening. We don't want your listeners. <laughs> exactly. Improving the global food system. Like, who wants people to go hungry? Nobody. Yeah. And phasing out fossil fuels is maybe the only controversial one at all there when you think about the amount of people that currently profit off that. But most people want a clean energy economy. So all of those are good things. So to tax the wealthiest 10% of individuals and companies to get that fund going, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find someone who, who thinks it's a bad idea when you look at just the issues and also the amount of people that that's going to impact. Like, yeah, if you're listening to the show, you're not in the 10% most likely. <laughs> like, I don't think we have many, many very, very wealthy billionaires who are listening to a podcast yeah. right now. That's not about like investment. So <laughs> I don't know. Like, this is such a good idea in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, I think in theory, this sounds awesome. Like the only issue I guess would be like, how do you carry this out? How do you impose the tax across, mm -hmm. you know, multiple countries, I guess would, would be the issue. And like, yeah, like you just said, all of those things that he, he suggests are pivotal things. You know, if we want to have a good future on this earth mm -hmm. and like things that, you know, some billionaires claim to really uh, back and, you know, give money towards. But I think it's a matter of being like, we don't have the funds as a global nation right now to say, yeah. you know, to put towards climate change and all and, and everything else involved. Like we need your help. You can be cemented basically in like glory that you contributed yeah. to the greatest threat to our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, like you'd, you'd be in the history books, right? And, and it's not even going to be a huge dent. Like the amount of wealth that is circulating around this world right now. Yeah. Sure. Not all of it's liquidated, whatever, you, whatever loopholes you want to bring up and say, oh, like you can't just donate money. Sure. Fine. Whatever. The, the important part here is we are able to get that we are able to put this in a fund potentially the way that I think makes the most sense to do this cop 27 last year we had cop 26. We have another climate agreement that's hopefully going to come out this year. Yeah. Use it, use it to create a global fund. 
like that's been floated around and have it be proportional based on the amount of carbon emissions that your country has historically put into the atmosphere is currently putting into the atmosphere. Like make those wealthier nations pay and inside those nations make it come down to your, your like in the U S your Kylie Jenner's your Travis Scott's yeah, your Taylor Swift's like all the Elon Musk, like all of these people who we've talked about with their private jets, creating a ton of emissions in the past month. Let's not just make them a meme. Let's not just be mad about it for a week and then move on. Like let's yeah, forget about it. Have those people be accountable and pay into this fund so that people who live on the coasts in coastal communities in Bangladesh are not disproportionately impacted by a system that they haven't really played into as much. Yeah. No, I'm in co- complete agreement with you. Hold the people who are emitting the most accountable for their emissions. Yeah. Call us idealists, call us dreamers, sure. But I hope we're right. Like, I hope this is something that makes a lot of sense to us. Would it ever happen? Who's to say? But it could and it should. Agreed. And I think you're right that COP27 would be a good place to start. Because it's it's a good place to keep people accountable. Not mm-hmm. not that they've done that really so much in the past, but like at least to make goals on a on a stage and not have it just be words, yeah. You know, and actually be held accountable. That would that would be nice. Yeah. But anyway, let's move on to our next story. It is from Ivan Penn of the New York Times, who writes: A solar firm plans to build off-grid neighborhoods in California. Sunova Energy asked the California Public Utilities Commission to let the company directly compete with utilities, which essentially have a monopoly over the regions that they provide energy to. Um, If this is something that you're not really familiar with, go try to get your electricity from a different provider compared to where you live. You can't. (laughs) So in this case, Sonova hopes to become a micro utility by installing solar panels and batteries as part of home construction in developments with fewer than 2000 residents. They would help the residents save money by getting them off the utility grid and powered by this micro grid that's specific to their development. So Nova said it would offer residents electricity that was 20% cheaper than what Pacific Gas and Electric or Southern California Edison currently offer in California. If the Public Utilities Commission approves this, it could force utilities to lower their rates to stay in business. So Nova argues that residents should have a right to choose between the existing utilities and a microgrid that can generate more than enough electricity to meet a development's needs. Look, if you're a, if you are pro capitalism, right? You you bleed you bleed green. You love all this sort of stuff. You should fully support this because like utilities go against that, right? Like the whole capitalism breeds innovation thing. Yeah. Breeds a lot of copying things that are successful as well, but I'm not going to get into that right now. <laughs> um this is the sort of thing where it's like bring in competition. Make people lower their prices because something better is available for cheaper. Like that's the good side of this system that we're in. And this is a perfect example of something that can work. So the reason that it's it's cheaper to do this really is because it can be really expensive to connect new homes to the existing electric grid. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars sometimes to run a service line from wherever the nearest substation is over to a new house. So a system like this can actually be much cheaper than conventional energy systems for new homes, especially in remote areas where it's not like you're densely populated and you're just connecting 
you know, right down the street. We're talking about right. out in rural areas where they don't have as many substations per capita. This is a system that can really benefit something like that. So the author also writes that once an off-grid system is paid for, the cost of operating and maintaining it is often modest and predictable, whereas utility rates can move up or down very sharply. Yeah, so this sort of approach was tried actually near Lake Tahoe for several years, but the town of Kirkwood ended up connecting the microgrid to the state electric grid due to high electricity costs. It's possible that the same thing could happen with Sonova's microgrid approach, but the cost of solar panels and batteries have both dropped drastically in the last decade. So off-grid systems can now generate more energy and are also more affordable to install. Yeah, you know, you have better panels than you had a decade ago. You have better battery storage than you had a decade ago. It's cheaper to install both of those than it was a decade ago. So this is not a guarantee. Like Nick said, it's possible that the same thing that happened in Kirkwood could happen here. But it's also very likely that this could go well. Quick summary of Sonova's plan is to install solar panels and batteries at each home and at common areas like clubhouses in developments with under 2,000 units. The company anticipates power outages for about a quarter of the time each year under a microgrid compared to traditional utilities. So the numbers there are they would say it's going to happen for about 30 minutes a year. Utilities average two hours. And the reason for that is because in a microgrid, there's a lot less going on. So it's a lot easier to trace the source of a blackout. It makes response time quicker. It's why so many people are big advocates for smart grid technologies. The odds are kind of against Sonova here because they're basically asking to cut into the utilities revenue. But we will see. I mean, if this worked out, this would be awesome and like a really good thing moving forward for a lot of different communities. Yeah, absolutely. And what do they exactly mean by uh, power outages for one quarter of the year? Does that mean like you're literally without power or you, you would need to have um, another source of electrical power? Yeah, it would be blackouts. So like a storm comes in and, and takes you offline. So when that happens now, there are so many different things feeding into the electric grid that it's often hard to trace utilities. I'm sorry, to trace outages. And right. The utility has to go in and like figure that out during snowstorms for us up in the Northeast or, or droughts that have caused wildfires near utility poles. It's tougher to trace that when you have so many things feeding into it. But in this case, in a microgrid, there's only so much room and so many lines that they have to check. Right. So it really cuts down response time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, so many energy analysts have been discussing the pros of switching to microgrids for years as technology starts to get smarter. So we'll see. I mean, this would be cool. Yeah, definitely. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. And after it, we will have a couple more quick hits for you. It is TPT 100. Stay tuned, y'all. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. 
Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, extreme China heat wave could lead to global chaos and food shortages by Jamie Seidel of the New Zealand Herald. China has been in a severe heat wave for pretty much the entire summer. It is the most extreme heat event ever recorded in world history and has caused lakes and rivers to dry up, crops to die and factories to close so that available electricity can go towards residential use. If you weren't familiar with the story, you still probably felt the impacts as it has impacted the global supply chain for cars, batteries, solar panels, and food, just to name a few. More than 900 million people across 17 Chinese provinces are subjected to record-breaking conditions right now. Along with lakes and rivers drying up, dams are emptying and hydroelectric plants are shutting down due to the ongoing drought. This article links a video of the third largest river in the world severely dried up, which you absolutely need to check out if you want to see how bad this heat wave really is. It is a sight to see. Let's just say that. It's it's yeah. like, wow, how is this even possible? Yeah. Like, you know, when you drive on, on the highway past a reservoir and you're like, oh, it's kind of low and you start to see around the edges, the, the dirt and like sand yeah. or silt, whatever those banks are. Yep. It's that, but it's so far into where the river is that like bridges are extending over land where it's normally over flowing water. It's it's really yeah eerie, and it's even in the middle too. Like it's cutting in into the middle as well. Yeah. Like you're you're seeing like these big uprooted like parts of land or sand, mm-hmm. whatever. Like you just said, and it's like wow, that's it's got to be really bad in order to to be in the middle as well. Yeah, definitely check it out. So in in China, along with the river's drying up. You have hundreds of thousands of acres that have been burned up, essentially, which is decreasing global food supply and increasing prices, especially for vegetables and grains. Um, I'd like to point out also that Ukraine is one of the world's largest grain exporters. So to have another country that's essentially a grain superpower having hundreds of thousands of acres burn, it's 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 not doing anything good for the global food supply right now. Yeah. Weather historian Maximiliano Herrera is quoted as saying, there's nothing in world climatic history which is even minimally comparable to what is happening in China. He added, this combines the most extreme intensity with the most extreme length with an incredibly huge area all at the same time. It's insane. Electricity demand for cooling has spiked at the same time electricity production has plummeted because of hydroelectric power turbines that are not receiving enough water. And nuclear power plants are also struggling to keep their reactors cool. Chinese sources have stated that 66 rivers are completely dry 
and the Yangtze River is at its lowest level since recording began 150 years ago. Yeah, when you don't have enough water, the energy systems that require water are going to suffer. So you have hydroelectric dams and you have nuclear power plants that are just off right now because they can't keep things cool. And this extends past energy. Shipping cargo routes are blocked because water is too low and drinking water is being rationed for people. The shipping routes and factory shutdowns are impacting the supply chains for companies like Toyota, Volkswagen, Tesla, Intel, Apple, and Amperex Technology, which is the world's largest battery maker. So these are all major issues, but food availability is the main issue according to this article. Global supplies of grain are already far short of requirements because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, like we mentioned. Um, That fight has removed some 20% of exported wheat, barley, and corn from the market, which again increases prices. So now China is facing severe shortfalls in the autumn harvest of rice and wheat in the Yangtze Basin, and analysts say that that is likely to be yet another stressor on global food prices. And the Chinese Communist Party says it's taking steps in order to combat the severe shortfalls in the autumn harvest including releasing water from reservoirs in the Himalayas and dousing crops with water-retaining chemicals so that they can require less water. So I guess we just need to hope that those chemicals aren't doing more harm than good. Like, I get this. People need food. But I hope that the chemicals aren't, you know, any worse than the chemicals that we already ingest regularly. You know, you don't want to make one issue arise while solving another one but in this case like people need food so if it's going to help with water retention so you can use less water so people can drink it i don't know man this is really really brutal situation yeah absolutely heat is impacting china at a historical level but much of the northern hemisphere is also experiencing heat waves The article says that 60% of the European Union is drought affected and 41% of the United States is in drought. Yeah, part of the the drought that's going on is like the Colorado River is drying up right now. And that was a a big major story this week that posted about on Instagram. You know, I'll be completely honest with the listeners here. Uh, I had a tough week. I did not have the bandwidth to to go in and, and read about that after writing much of this episode already had a bunch of the stories planned out. So we'll cover that next week. You know, it's, it's a really big deal with a lot of major water implications on the river and the surrounding States, surrounding communities. So look, 41%, almost half of the U S is in drought. 60% of Europe is in drought. China is experiencing historic heat waves that have never been seen before in world history. So like if you're still out here denying climate change, what are you doing? Yeah, the signs are here. It's we're past the point of like neglect and mm-hmm. putting this off for the next generation. Like, there's got to be just action now, and it's got to be at the top. It's got to start at the top. Yeah, Nick, I'm gonna pull up a tweet for you. I'm gonna describe it to the listeners. Um, I'll retweet it as well. Right now, it's from Peter Kalmus, a NASA scientist, and it says climate change timeline. And about 45% of the timeline is climate change isn't real. And then another 45% is, okay, climate change is real. We're just not convinced it's by humans. And then there's like a 5% block at the end that says, oops. And then a 5% block at the end that says, (laughs) so (laughs) I like to think, I like to think that we're still at the oops and not quite at the, the yeah, but 
don't know. Let's uh, let's hope that like this summer, which sucked for so many people across the world, is the wake up call that the global community desperately, desperately needed. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's important to, as much as it sucks to report the news that's hard to hear, mm-hmm. it's incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, blind optimism doesn't really get us anywhere. You got to be optimistic about the technologies that are going to help us mitigate this, but also realistic about the situation we're in. Yeah, absolutely. All right, just going to close this one out with a quick reminder for everyone. Climate change impacts different regions in different ways. So that is why we are seeing extremely hot and dry weather in the global north this year and unusually wet, violent flooding in the global south. Okay, let's close out TPT 100 with our last quick hit of the week. And it is by Caleb Jones, who writes, Hawaii shuts down its last coal-fired power plant as ban takes effect for the LA Times. The state has officially stopped using the dirtiest of the dirty fossil fuels on September 1st after finishing off a coal shipment from late July. After 30 years of operation, the AES Corp coal plant closed, which formerly produced around 20% of the electricity on Oahu, Hawaii's most populous island. Governor David Ige said that this is about reducing greenhouse gases, and this coal facility is one of Hawaii's largest emitters. Taking it offline will stop an estimated 1.5 million metric tons of greenhouse gases from entering the atmosphere every single year. Hawaii has suffered the effects of climate change through higher temperatures, more intense storms, and by witnessing the destruction of coral reefs. Those reefs are impacted by bleaching associated with increased ocean temperatures, rapid sea level rise, more intense storms, and drought that is increasing the state's wildfire risk. So in 2020, Hawaii's legislature passed a law banning the use of coal for energy at the start of 2023, and as part of the complete transition to renewable energy by 2045. So, looks like they have phased out coal three months ahead of schedule. Nice. Critics of this decision would say that it was the right move at the wrong time. Renewable sources meant to replace coal energy are not yet online because of permitting delays, contract issues, and pandemic-related supply chain problems. So Hawaii is going to have to rely on natural gas and oil in the meantime, which is slightly less polluting than coal and also costlier. Officials say that this could translate to a 7% increase in electricity bills for Hawaiians who already have the highest energy and living costs in the entire U.S. So the good news is that Hawaii already gets about 40% of its power from sustainable sources, including wind, solar, hydroelectric, and geothermal. And AES Corp., the owner of this coal plant that was shut down, has already transitioned to creating clean energy and has begun working on large solar farms across the state. One of their solar projects set to be completed next year will be located in West Oahu and offset some of the lost coal energy here. The president of AES's clean energy division, Leonardo Moreno, said, Renewables are getting cheaper by the day. I envision a future where energy is very, very cheap, abundant, and renewable. I, too, envision that future, Leonardo Moreno. (laughs) It's cool, man. Like It's cool to see a coal company basically being like, hey, we are an energy company, not just a coal company. I think we've made that point before where it's like, yeah, if Shell, Exxon, BP, like all of these oil companies say, you know what? We're not an oil company. We're an energy company. And they commit to, to what AES is doing here and saying, look, the writing's on the wall for our in- industry. Let's use all of our money and let's keep making money yeah. doing it in clean energy. You know, the, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I have the same sentiment as you. I was borderline like shocked when I read, oh, AES 
Corp is actually working on large solar farms. What? Yeah, they were they were they were uh, they were a coal plant. Now they're producing like sustainable energy. What is this? Yeah, this is a story we have not heard before. Usually they just double down. They're like, "What do you mean, no more coal? <laughs> coal is so clean. You love coal. <laughs> yeah, coal powers your house. You love coal." <laughs> It's going to be different this time, babe. I won't emit all of those greenhouse gas emissions. Take me back. We're done. We're breaking up with our toxic coal power plants and our natural gas plants are, are next next on the chopping block. Yes. Yeah, we're coming for you. Hey, ExxonMobil, I'm coming for that for the next 100 episodes. <laughs> Speaking of 100 episodes, that will do it for today's 100th episode of The Planet Today. On Monday, we are going to be back for an interview that... I am really, really excited for you all to hear. Yes. So Matt spoke with Leif Cox of the International Tiger Pro- Project about Sumatran tiger conservation, the problem with palm oil, and more. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you have enjoyed for the last hundred episodes and the next hundred episodes. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. All right. The last 100 have been amazing. To the next 100. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Happy football season to all who celebrate. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Go, Pat, go. Bear down. <laughs>